Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net for more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Bree Newsom Bass about the importance of removing symbols of hate, but at the same time, at a deeper level, what racial reckoning in this country will require of us. Bree Newsom Bass is an artist, activist, public speaker. She is an organizer in the modern civil rights movement, and she's helped develop several nonprofit and grassroots organizations. In 2005, she attracted national attention when she scaled a flagpole at South Carolina's Capitol building to remove the Confederate battle flag in protest of systemic racism following the racially motivated murders at Emanuel AME in Charleston. Her artistic work includes written and film and performance pieces. She is a recipient of an NAACP Image Award, among other honors. Bree, welcome to Soul of a Nation podcast. Thank you for having me. Bree, how's your spirit these days? So I began the year with setting the word, like my key word for the year, kind of like my mantra was going to be breathe, that I was going to, you know, make sure that I focused on breathing at all times. And that was before everything happened. I just knew that there was going to be a lot going on uh, in 2020. I'm I'm doing a documentary project. A a lot of things are happening. uh, And that has just become even more necessary, you know, as, as time goes on. And so I'm just really focused on resilience, you know, and continuing to breathe, continuing to kind of be in the moment, focused on what I can handle in the moment and, and learning how to be at peace with what is outside of my control. Well, that's that's good. We worry about things that we can't control all the time, don't we? And not just, well, we can control this and do that. That's all we can really do. Well, I remember when we first met, we were doing something at Marquette University, I think, in their Diversity Inclusion Week or something. And you had just climbed this pole flagpole and everybody saw you and you got this national attention. And that's a powerful story because of how and why you did it and really the risk you took in doing so. And I wanna I wanna start with that to get your reflection on that. But then I want to go from there to what do we do now uh, given uh hopefully a racial reckoning that goes deeper and deeper. What what's required now? I remember at the time I raised with you that I heard you were you were saying Bible verses up and down the flagpole, and it wasn't just uh, rhetorical. It was really uh, you know asking God for your safety and and praying. You were risking your life to go up that pole. It, the story of how the, this little group did it and why and how you were chosen or volunteered and others. It's a really amazing story. Tell a little story about what it meant, why you did it, and why you chose to take really the risk of uh, even risking your life for taking down that hateful symbol of the Confederate battle flag. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I mean, you know, in in 2015, by that point, we had been seeing a series of, you know, cases particularly involving police brutality 
you know, um, being caught on video, unarmed Black men being shot and killed by police. That was a lot of what was focused in the headlines, including in North Charleston, South Carolina, the, the case of Walter Scott. That happened in April of 2015. And so then when we got to June of 2015 and we had this instance of a white supremacist driving from Columbia, South Carolina, down to Charleston, went into Emanuel AME, this historically Black church was, you know, this rich history dating back centuries, and murdered Black people during a prayer meeting. And it was just so violent. There was just, a, there was a level of spiritual violence to it, you know? And I think that was, that was part of the intention. It was, it was an act of terror. It was meant to cause feelings of terror. And, and so then once the images, you know, surface of Dylan Roof and you see him waving the Confederate flag, it naturally refocused attention on South Carolina's display of the Confederate flag at their capital, which had been controversial for years. You know, my family's from South Carolina. So I grew up, you know, with the awareness of it. That flag was first raised in the 60s, really as a statement of opposition to the civil rights movement. In the year 2000, they moved it from the dome of the Capitol to a flagpole on the lawn. But at that point, they wrote into law, they created what they called the um, South Carolina Heritage Act, which said that the flag couldn't be lowered for any reason unless there was a two thirds majority in the state house. So for like a week, we had this visual of the state flag of South Carolina and the American flag being lowered to half staff, but the Confederate flag being at the top of the pole. And an even uh, worse visual was created because the pastor of Emanuel AME was Clementa Pinckney, and he was a state senator. So they were, you know, processing his casket through the streets of the Capitol. And, you know, there's the Confederate flag. It just created this horrific visual. But even apart from the visual, it, it symbolized the power structure, right? It symbolized the deeply entrenched racism and just how much things had not changed. You know, you mentioned I've been involved in the modern civil rights movement. Obviously, I wasn't alive, you know, in the 60s. I wasn't alive when, you know, the the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church happened. But for us, this was kind of like the closest thing to that because we had not really seen that you know, since the time that we had, had become involved. And so that was kind of, those were the circumstances where I came together with a group of, of other activists. We were actually in Charlotte, North Carolina at that time, which is just an hour north of Columbia. And we made the, the decision, we were like, if there's a way that we can take this flag down, we should do it. Like these are the exact circumstances under which civil disobedience makes sense. Because the whole purpose of civil disobedience is not just to challenge an unjust law, which we feel the Heritage Act was, you know, the, the law that kept the flag at the top of the pole, but also to, to draw a contrast with the violence that had occurred in Charleston, right? So in Charleston, you had this person went in in the evening, shot people who were unarmed and ran away. By contrast, I would be scaling this pole in broad daylight, you know, just showing this kind of like defiance against that kind of terrorism. And so that's how that's kind of how we settled on on doing that. So you knew there was a real risk here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so part of the reason why I did it so early in the morning was because there were like all of these ongoing, you know, protests and counter protests down there at the site of the Confederate flag. We, we knew that there was like a pro Confederate flag rally planned for later that day. And so we were just trying to reduce, you know, the likelihood of, of somebody coming by with a gun, you know, possibly 
I, I was kind of, I was knew I was going to be arrested like that. I was really kind of prepared for, but I mean, in addition to that, I mean, obviously just the, the dangers of scaling a pole. I mean, the, the act itself was, you know, physically dangerous, but again, the, I mean, it, it's important to know as well. I had to scale the pole because of the way that South Carolina had designed the flag. Like you couldn't just walk up to it and lower it. So, I mean, that that just became like the method for how to get it down. But in doing that, it became a very powerful symbol for the ongoing struggle, you know, to dismantle the systems. The many people who have risked their lives, in some cases lost their lives in this ongoing uh, uh, struggle to dismantle these systems. You're, you're facing arrest, but a lot of people are carrying guns all around that flagpole. And there was a real danger of some somebody seeing this young black woman up the flagpole taking down the Confederate flag of having a, having a rifle and, and just just uh, shooting you down. That was a real possibility. Yeah, I mean, and we, we discussed that, which, you know, if you're going to commit any kind of act of, of civil disobedience, you have to, you know, talk through and think through all the possibilities that, you know, because you want to go into it prepared for all of that. And so that was something that we discussed. And there was really nothing that anyone could do if that worst case scenario were to, you know, play itself out. And so I really had made peace with all of those possibilities. I mean, this is something that I prayed over as well, you know, and I did truly believe, I did truly believe that I was called to do it and that God was going to bring me down safely. You know, I did believe that. But, you know, making making peace with that possibility, I really kind of likened it to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I'm not going to bow down to this idol. You know, I believe that God will save us in the furnace, you know, but in any circumstance, we're not going to bow down to this idol. And you were believing God would bring you down, but you were praying all the way up and all the way down and citing those Bible verses. Yes. I had actually planned to do it in silence. I don't know. I, I was, cause I wasn't exactly sure how things were going to play out. I had actually planned to just kind of scale in silence, but then, you know, when the police showed up and they were you know telling me to come down and I'm going to be arrested, I started having a dialogue with them, you know, letting them know this is the extent of it. Uh, you know, I'll come down and, you know, surrender to be arrest, arrested. And then I was just, you know, just praying over myself, you know, as I was, as I was going up quoting Psalm 27, you know, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Help people understand, you mentioned the raising of that flag, how the, the raising of that flag is a, was a signal. It was a threat. It was, uh, it was to make, pe- make sure black people understood what that meant. It was really, it's signaling a threat of violence. It's not just a Southern culture heritage. It's a clear signal that those flags won't burn up, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So it's important to understand, if I'm not mistaken, it was like 1962, I believe, that South Carolina raised that flag. And at the time, they claimed that they were doing it to mark the centennial of the Civil War, which, of course, that would have been 1960, right? So that timeline does not make sense. But what was happening at that time was you had the sit-in protests were really gaining steam. And in fact, one of the most significant protests took place in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Uh, you had the Rock Hill Nine who had who had uh, done a successful sit-in. What was pivotal about their sit-in was they refused bail. And so they their action kind of resolved this issue that the sit-in protest was running into of, you know, how do we keep raising money for bail? And so they kind of went the route of Gandhi where it's like, you know, I just refuse to to post bail and we're just going to fill the jails till you don't have any more space. And so it was in response to that activity 
that South Carolina raised that Confederate flag. It has no connection to the Civil War. This is not like something that had been, you know, flying over the state capitol for a hundred years. It was specifically about signaling that even though the Confederacy had lost the war, white power was still the order of the day in South Carolina, and don't forget it. You know, it's it's interesting. For a long time, the South was the main focus of talk about racism in this country, as if racism only existed there. And But as we've seen time and time again, recently in Minneapolis and other places, the police brutality and systemic racism you speak of is in every state. But I like the way you turn this around. You, you said, you wrote, in now is the time for true courage. You wrote this. You see, I know my history and my heritage. The Confederacy is neither the only legacy of the South, nor an admirable one. The Southern heritage I embrace is the legacy of a people unbowed by racial oppression. Yeah, I mean, I think that there tends to be this idea that the white South has a monopoly on Southern heritage, you know, as though as though there hasn't that entire time been the the history of struggle, uh, you know, a, a, against it. And so this idea, one of the main arguments that people would make when we were, you know, calling the Confederate flag a hate symbol and saying that needs to come down is, well, that's that's Southern heritage. And like, well, no, wait a second. I mean, that's not the only Southern heritage. We, there are other ways that we can we can, you know, lift up a, a Southern heritage that is that is, you know, a greater source of pride than the Confederacy. So in some ways, the South has been forced to acknowledge and reconcile with its difficult past in ways that other parts of the country have yet to do. And, and what can the rest of the country learn from the work that hasn't been going on, being done in the South by a Southern activists like you? What can the rest of the country learn from what you all have been doing in the South with that commitment to be resilient against unbowed racial oppression? I think there really has to be a, a confrontation with history in this country. There has been such enormous historical revisionism. And I think that it has been not only about rewriting the history of the South, but like you said, kind of rewriting the whole history of the nation. Because people try to act as though slavery was only in the South, <laughs> you know, and it was like it was an economy that only existed in the South. Like it wasn't a global economy, like the, the culture of slavery wasn't global. The culture of white supremacy wasn't global. And so that's why we'll see Confederate flags popping up in places in the country that were never a part of the Confederacy. Right. We have to confront the the history of slavery in New York. I remember when they were doing some excavation around Wall Street and they, they discovered thousands of Africans who had been buried there. You know, when they discovered the burial ground for the first time, Wall Street began as a slave market. And that's the kind of history where if we don't really confront it, if we don't understand that, then we're kind of like sleepwalking through the present. Right. Because your history is present with you, whether you are conscious of it or not. And being conscious of it is what gives you the ability to, you know, to really act in the present. It's not that it's not like ignoring the past makes racism go away in the present. And I think people are seeing that more now. Um, we've even had historical revisionism since the civil rights movement where people are like, oh, OK, well, you know, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and we had the March on Washington and, you know, and then everything was resolved. And that's not what happened. You know, it's fascinating to me how I've heard and seen the phrase America's original sin spoken more in the last two months than in my whole life. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is really a long time 
with a white police knee on the black neck of George Floyd caused us, that was long enough to start thinking about 401 years, eight minutes, 46 seconds to 401 years. It's an amazing awakening for so many, particularly white people who are, who are finally listening, maybe because under COVID, we we're all watching. We're all just watching and because there have been videos before, as you know, but you have been saying strong words about removing symbols isn't enough, isn't the end goal here. How do we move from removing hateful racist symbols to permanent systemic and policy change? One of the things that I really try to highlight for people is understanding the extent to which racism is a very bureaucratic process. And that that was true during slavery as well. You know, it, it was very there was somebody whose job it was, I imagine, at the at the auction block to, you know, file all the papers. And, you know, we just kind of go through the motions of atrocity. I mean, the same thing is true with how the Holocaust unfolded. Right. Like you really have to understand the way that mass atrocity, mass human rights violations, they're only really able to occur because we turn them into these highly organized processes. You know, I I do think that as individuals, we know intuitively the difference between right and wrong. We can see the humanity in other people. I do believe that. I think that there's something that happens, though, when we turn it into systems and processes and bureaucracy that makes it it's like a group thing where people just kind of go along with it. I mean, the same thing is, is true of police violence. Well, you know, somebody has a uniform on. So, you know, we're watching him choke the life out of someone, but he, he's wearing a uniform. So, you know, it's official. So is it, you know, and so I think that taking, I like it, you know, removing the symbols, that's, that's very important, but we really have to look at the legislation. We have to look at what are the policies, what are the processes, the daily decisions that result in inequality being maintained generation after generation. What's happening right now with the schools is a perfect example. There's going to be so much inequality in terms of, of how we respond to this pandemic situation. Some parents have the have the luxury and the resources to you know homeschool their children or create alternatives. The majority of children don't have that luxury. And so they are falling behind because of our lack of investment in education, because of our lack of investment in health care. It creates these these gaps in terms of people's access to to resources. And those are legislative decisions. Those are policies. You know, a lot of times people think that that racism and bigotry is just about how we feel about each other as individuals, you know, and, and people sometimes even get defensive. They're like, well, you know, I don't I don't hate anyone. It's not about you hating someone. Right. It, it's about like the way that these systems are structured to make it such that like where you were born in this country, the zip code that you were born in can determine your life outcome. And white people like to individualize all that, you know, unless I'm the one who did something, I'm not responsible. And yet if you benefit from those, what you call bureaucracies, uh, structures, if you benefit from oppression, you are responsible for changing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we we tend to individualize things to cover over things. I think that's I think that's entirely true. And I think one of the things that is significant about the pandemic era, and I think maybe one of the reasons why this is has been an awakening for people, is because it has really shown how interconnected we are. Right. Like just just the way that the pandemic spreads, the way that the lack of of access to PPE in one community, you know, 
causes it to spread to other communities shows that there really is no such thing as individuality, you know, past a certain extent. Like it's it's an entirely interconnected society. And COVID has laid bare and demonstrated, almost verified the inequities that are there in all those systems. It's just shown that in fact, this is verifiable. This is now evidential. It's just clear. And it's about those systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you can't deny something like a pandemic. It has no biases, right? A pandemic has no uh, inherent biases. It is just a virus that is in search of lungs. And so when we see like how it is impacting these different communities, it is, it, it impacts communities based on who has access to resources. And it's as simple as that. You said for a piece in The Root in 2015, you wrote, I'm struck by the way society can commemorate the movements of the past while condemning the movement of the present. Now, with the recent deaths of civil rights leaders, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, this tension seems to be ever-present. How do we mitigate this tension? How do we ensure that our heroes are remembered in full in a way that shows us the decisions they make made in the past changed our future? And how do we fight against the sort of uh, covering over or, or watering down, or you might even say whitewashing of our nation's heroes? Yeah, I, I think we have to push back against the constant revisionist history. Because like I was saying, for instance, with the, the 60s civil rights movement, you know, there tends to be this narrative of, oh, we have overcome and, you know, it, it's Martin Luther King made this sacrifice and people sacrificed. And once we had segregation and now we don't have segregation anymore. And, and since the you know buses are no longer segregated, that means that we have overcome. And clearly that is not true. Like if, you know, if that were true, we would not be in a position where we're concerned if we're going to have an election or if people are going to be able to vote. The Voting Rights Act has been gutted you know, since that time. So we actually have fewer voting protections today than we had in 1966, right? Like a year after the Voting Rights Act was passed. So I I think that there has to be, I think that the best way that we can honor the lives of of those people is to continue the fight and, and to not be of the belief that it is over. I mean, and I think John Lewis did as, as much as he possibly could to, to make that clear to everyone that it is not over, you know, or else he wouldn't be still encouraging everyone to get into good trouble, right? He very much recognized that things had moved to a certain point, but they were far from, from settled. And, and so we, we, can't, we can't allow ourselves to become complacent with where things are at. Some of us have been to that Edmund Pettus Bridge with, with John Lewis and saw, and now the whole nation has seen again, how he risked his life for voting rights. And yet, as you say, it's not done. In fact, in North Carolina, where you are talking to us from today, there was a court ruling on several new voter ID laws that North Carolina wanted to put into place put into place, and the court ruled on them, and the court language was that these voter ID laws, these new rules, were a systemic surgical attack on the rights of Black voters. Surgically precise attack. Exactly. I, um, that's actually the first time I went to jail, was protesting the passage of that bill. 
we did a sit-in in Tom Tillis's office. And I mean, that 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 was such an eye-opening moment for me because that was really when I jumped feet first into the movement. I got involved with the Moral Monday protest organized by Reverend Barber here in North Carolina. And I think that because for me, I really saw the Voting Rights Act and, and you know, that key legislation from the 60s as settled business, you know, like, you know, like clearly there were still things that we needed to work on, but that was settled bu- business. And so to see how quickly that could be done away with and folks could just go to work with trying to set us back, you know, a generation was just mind blowing to me. And I think that was part of what shook me into a point of just kind of questioning for myself, how much was I taking my rights for granted if it could so easily be turned back? Because it was so obvious that they just went point by point and said, what are all the ways that Black people vote? And let's attack all of those methods. (laughs) That's right. So in 2017, we had this public conversation in Milwaukee at Marquette. And we both, I remember, got talking to the students about, we have to build a movement of what we are for and not just what we are against. And and several of them were like, what are you, what are you guys against? What are you guys against? And in, in recent weeks, that's been a national conversation about reimagining public safety, for example, reimagining what public safety means. How do we continue to not just be against all the things that are that are oppressive and evil and sinful and wrong, but how do we create a place, a conversation where what we are for, what we are reimagining, what we want to be for is before us now. How do we say everything has to change <laughs> and here's how it has to change? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, imagining is the key word, right? What, what, what does a day look like in the post-oppressive society? You know, I, the, the, the terminology that I frequently use is a human rights-based democracy because in my view, what, what I am seeing is a situation where all of our laws and all of our structures are informed by a basic belief in human rights and, and you know, affirming things that are key to human rights. So like, for instance, we wouldn't have a situation where masses and millions of people are facing eviction because we have determined that housing is a human right. And so whatever laws need to be passed, you know, to make sure that that doesn't happen, we would have those laws in place. And so I think that, you know, just making the space for for imagining that better, beautiful world, not only is it essential, like you said, for identifying where we are going, but that's also what sustains us because you'll burn out on just fighting, you know, what you are against. What really sustains you is the belief in in that beautiful vision for what could be. So speaking of housing, which you just did, you've been a housing activist. You've done lots of different things, but you've done some some creative activism at the grassroots around housing. I mean, wh- where do we need to go to go in housing? Not just we're we're against redlining, we're against all the things that that deliberately racially surrogate us so that we don't hear each other's stories and moms don't talk to each other about their hopes and fears for their kids. We're, we're separated so we don't ever hear each other's stories uh, systemically by, by policy. But other than being against that and saying that, you've been doing some pretty creative work. Where, where can we go in housing? What are some ways to reimagining, reimagine housing in our country? So I am in the camp of folks who really believe that housing should be declared a human right. Like this is something that no one should be without. And and I think that again, this is this is another issue where the pandemic is showing how housing is not just an economic issue, it's a public health issue, it's a public safety issue. If people don't have access to safe, stable housing. 
And so if we could make it so that even the poorest among us, the poor among the poor have safe, stable housing, I think that it would go miles in addressing so many of the other issues. I think that it would be a key first step in addressing poverty. I think there was a lot of logic in Martin Luther King choosing to focus on housing, you know, and kind of like, especially when he turned his attention to the North, um, you know, really looking at this, this issue of public housing. It's, it's, such an, it's such a necessity if we are going to have a human rights-based democracy. It's tied to voting, right? We're looking at a situation now where if millions of people are evicted from their homes, we're not sure how they're going to be able to vote in the upcoming election. It completely destabilizes communities. So I've just been working with people who are directly impacted by this issue because they are often the people who have actually like some of the best solutions, the most creative solutions, obviously, because they live it every day for how we can address this issue. Uh, you cannot survive as a human being without shelter. And so to especially be in like the wealthiest nation on earth, to have a situation where millions of people are looking at possibly being put out on the street is just completely inhumane and, and unjust. We had a conversation just this morning at Sojourners here about people don't make these connections. Like if in fact people lose the remission of rent in the next few days because Congress is failing to act and people will now be evicted. If that happens, what will happen with people being evicted? They will have to house together more and more and more in closer and closer ways, and they'll be more vulnerable to COVID, right? <laughs> so making these practical connections, if people are evicted, they're going to be closer together, and those people who are poorer and get evicted will get sicker. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's not, none of these things stay contained. Like I think, you know, looking back at the housing crisis in 2008, there tends to be this perception that, oh, okay, well, you know, it's only affecting poor people, you know, I can make my rent. So, you know, it won't affect me. But once the economy goes down, it affects everybody. And so again, we have to kind of get out of this very individualistic mentality and, and recognize like the nations that are faring the best right now are the ones who have a sense of the commons, right? And a belief in the commons and, and providing for the public good. America is struggling right now because we are so stuck in an individualistic kind of mindset and not really recognizing that what is good for everyone is good for everyone. You know, I was, I was doing a podcast with Reverend Freddie Haynes, one of the best preachers in the country. And he made that point in the podcast. He was paraphrasing Dr. King, who said, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. He said, infection anywhere is infection everywhere, which is making the point you're just making now. So last question is, uh, and I really wanted to ask you this, this, this question, this whole, this whole question of, of movements and generations and how do different generations of movements how do they work together? What are those, those tensions sometimes? But how do you find a way for generations to act in different ways together? How, how does a movement work historically? And how do you deal with the older and the younger and all of that in, the, in those movements? Yeah, I think communication is key. Communication and community. You know, and transitioning uh, throughout the movement. I actually just had a great conversation day before yesterday with some other activists. One was considered like an elder elder and the other, she described herself as a junior elder, <laughs> you know, 
because um, she, she was like, you know, there are people who are younger than me who consider me an elder at this point. But then I, you know, I look at other folks as being my elders. And she was also talking about how her role has transitioned, how she used to be, you know, out on the street with a lot of protests. But this go round, you know, and people are calling her to say, well, are you out here? She's like, no, you know, that's just not her role right now. And that's okay. A lot of times it is going to be at any given point in time, a lot of times it is the younger folks who are, you know, leading the charge in the streets because they have that energy. They, I mean, it's a lot of different things, right? That was true in the 60s civil rights movement as well. Even at my age, I mean, I'm, I'm 35, I'm still considered young, but I'm still looking at like, what can I do to support the students, right? What can I do to support the 20 year olds and the high schoolers who, who are like coming into their consciousness and who, who want to protest and do things right now? Because we have to constantly be prepared to pass the torch if we want to sustain the movement. Uh, and then at the same time, I'm looking to people who have been in the fight for a long time to give me guidance and, and understanding, you know, as, as I continue to go forward and figuring out what I can, I can do. I can't obviously climb poles <laughs> every, every year for the rest of my life. So my role is going to have to transition, you know, and I think through that kind of intergenerational building, that's how we support. I also keep in mind those who are no longer with us. You know, I, I consider them to still be a part of the movement. Those who are not yet with us are a part of the movement because that's who we're fighting for. You know, so there has to be this kind of like intergenerational mindset. So all that being said about the need to communicate and respect and listen to each other. Do you see differences between the older established activists and the rising generation of protest organizer or not so much? To a certain extent. I also think, though, that I think that there have always been different strains of thought within the movement. So, you know, so there are there are, you know, elders in the black radical tradition, right, um, who are elders and they're the same age as as folks who were more aligned with the establishment. And, you know, they're the same peer group and they had differing opinions at the time and they still have differing opinions today. I do think, though, that said that there is always this kind of like energy that comes from younger folks who want to take things a step further. And I think that's just natural. I think it's just I think it's just a natural part of when you are born into the world as a young person, you are less willing to tolerate. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, you kind of grow up, you're like, oh, okay, this is how the world is. Okay, yeah, no, I'm not going to tolerate this. Whereas older people tend to have, you know, there was what they wouldn't tolerate at a certain age, and then they come to a certain point of like, kind of like making peace, you know, with where things at, or, or they just appreciate they're they're kind of operating from the perspective of how much things have changed, right? Whereas young people, because they don't, they didn't see things how they were before, what they know is just right now. And so they're like, well, what I'm living right now is not tolerable to me. I understand it's better than, you know, it was 30 years ago, but it's not at all tolerable. That's a powerful word because every generation really has the responsibility of deciding what is no longer tolerable for them or what do they won't accept anymore that can't be changed. And, and that's how things change. And one mistake that people, I find often making this conversation is is about confrontational. King wasn't confrontational, and we are. Now, that is just not true. I mean, John Lewis was risking his life on that bridge. The Freedom Riders were risking, I mean, Rosa Parks was being confrontational. And, and so, con confrontation is always a part of movements. It always has been and always will be. <laughs> so, it's not a matter of more or less confrontation. It's more what you just said. What are we no longer going to tolerate? And how is a new generation going to step up and say, no more, no more, no more? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, again, like I think people have to be willing to look at the modern equivalent of the past, right? So it's it's one thing to romanticize the sit-in movements now, but at the time that was illegal. <laughs> it was illegal to sit at a segregated lunch counter. Yeah. And, and life risking and risking your life. Absolutely. Same time. Absolutely. And a lot of people thought that it was too provocative. I mean, they thought that that was too confrontational. They did not support the Freedom Rides at the time because they thought that it was too confrontational. They really wanted the younger people to just focus on doing voter registration and not try to push this issue of desegregation too much. So you have to be willing to translate that to the modern context, you know. You know, John Lewis, uh, we all watched his funeral just days ago now. And uh, John Lewis is the only politician I ever let hold one of my babies. <laughs> this is my son, Luke, who's now graduated from college and is a field organizer in the election in Pennsylvania. But when that funeral, it kind of brought all of this together. My favorite speech in the funeral was by Jim Lawson, <laughs> old Jim Lawson, who was the real trainer and 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 mentor and teacher for for John Lewis and Diane Nash and so many of those who risked their lives in those circumstances. And here's Lawson now, as old as he can be, and he gave this radical speech as he always as he always did. So. Well, I am one who's very grateful for you as one of those, uh, as you say, you're not as young as you used to be, but you're still pr- pretty young. And when I met you, you were, you were climbing flagpoles, and now you're telling us what racial reckoning is going to require of us. So I'm very grateful for you, and I hope you keep asking these same tough questions over and over again. And uh, we need you for that. So thank you, Bree. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To hear more from Bree, follow her on Twitter at Bree Newsom. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you from the Soul of a Nation.